And welcome back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Uh, I'm recording this on uh, the 30th, on June 30th, but I'm not sure exactly which day this will be released. I'm here at the remnants of Porkfest. Porkfest is long over, but uh, we're still in the campground at Rogers Campground in Lancaster, New Hampshire, enjoying the beautiful weather and the scenery of the White Mountains off in the distance, and uh, greatly honored here in our, our RV, uh, where my wife and I live, we are visited by Jeffrey Tucker. And Jeffrey, welcome back once again to the Bad Quaker Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's so great that you happen to be around. I decided to stay after Park Fest actually a couple of days because I thought, well, this is a chance to really you know, get a lot of work done and everything. So when you dropped me an email, I said you were here too. It just worked out perfectly. So thank you for having me for dinner. It was so wonderful. We did have a nice dinner, and I should brag just a little bit. My wife uh, got second place in the Porkfest's annual one-pot cook-off, and she was beat by what some people called a ringer. I don't know that that's really a fair, but she was beat by a professionally trained chef who owns her own business and uh, as a caterer, and she also won uh, the Food Network's uh, food, food Network's chopped, uh, chopped champion, and so that was the competitor that beat my wife. So my wife got the second place. If if it weren't for the professional chef, she would have taken first, taken first place. And that's the dinner that my wife served us right. uh, this amazing. evening. It was really it was good. Really, really amazing. Just perfect. And this is not what you expect. Yesterday I went to the store, and you know I didn't know that you were here. I didn't know anybody was here. So. I just went to the store and just got some provisions that I figured would last a couple of days, you know, some crackers and cheese and salami and that sort of thing, and uh, happily living off that and drinking, you know, wine and pomegranate juice and, you know, this sort of thing. This is what, this is what, this is what I did, and wow, it's just been great. So I, it was really, it was, it was such a surprise to me uh, to see you today and then to be invited for this amazing dinner, so that was really this is really making everything just right. And it's really nice to uh, to have you here in essentially our home, our RV. Right. And, uh, you know, we've talked so many times over the phone. We've sat at a bar together yeah. and talked and chit-chatted here and there. But uh, to have you in our home like this is really an honor. It's, it touches me very deeply, actually. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad I hung around an extra couple of days. I was only at Porkfest one day, you mm. know, so I arrived at 3 a.m., uh, lost and confused. It was very dark. I couldn't even find my, my cabin. So I stumbled down to the bonfire and basically just threw myself at somebody's mercy, you know, please help me. And so, of course, this is Porkfest, right? So everybody's just immediately wanting to help me. So the flashlights came out. They got me to my room, got to bed, and I collapsed and uh, woke up the next morning and, and gave a speech. So, yeah, it was wonderful. That's pretty cool. Uh, the I'm sure the office was closed. How was there no check? Oh, process? so that's interesting. They had already decided that they would leave the door open for me. Oh, that's so when nice. they said that, I thought, okay, I like New Hampshire. Yeah. 
you know, and then the next day, um, okay, now this is an interesting story. Um, the next day I had gone down and did a lot of shopping at the, you know, at the, the, the markets and everything like this. And, you know, got a lot of t-shirts and, you know, lots of small things, you know, uh, nice, nice things. I went back to the room. Well, turned out they had come and locked my door uh, for me. Well, I didn't really have a key, right? <laughs> so I set all the stuff at my, at, at the foot of the door, you know, just in plain view, went back to the, to, um, to the big group and whatever and stayed there the entire day. At some point I went and got the key. Late that night I came back and of course, it's a high traffic area. I mean, I had no doubt that this would be the case, but nothing had been touched. Yeah. Everything was still there. And this is valuable stuff, you know, but I just knew it. I knew that you're going to get a bunch of liberty lovers, people that have sworn their lives to the devotion to uh, the sanctity of liberty and, 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 and life and, and property, that your stuff's going to be safe sitting in front of a doorstep. Yeah, and I actually saw that, uh, the pile of stuff, and, and you actually had jewelry among the other things, uh, one of uh, Nikki Darling's wonderful works of art. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, I, it was a be- very beautiful, actually. I like that very mm-hmm. much. Yeah, but so yeah, nobody touched, not, nobody touched it, right? And I'm not sure. You know, it's just it's a, it, to me, it's a kind of a small point, but it's a symbol of something very important. The values that are at the heart of this gathering do matter for the conduct of our lives. You know. Um, what we can expect from others and what we expect of ourselves. Mm. Um, uh, you know, there's not any, uh, you know, there's a certain real, I don't know how to put this. There's been utopian communities in the past, but right. they've always been had some mistake, mm. right? But, and Porkfest is a kind of utopian community, but there's a, a bedrock foundation of sort of the integrity of the individual and what the individual owns. So you get a high degree of respect for property. Um, but flowing out of that comes, you know, a sense of peace and safety and a great deal of charity and generosity yeah. and, and, and benevolence and, um, mutual joy. Mm. Uh, you feel all of that at Porkfest very intensely. And I think it's not just because the people are good, which they are, but I think it's the philosophy that, that informs their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that. Uh, we've seen it one year, uh, at Porkfest. I had this you know, this studio you see uh, here inside the the motorhome. Essentially, I had that outside on picnic tables, mm. and uh, the mics were set up, everything, and we would just come and go, and and left the whole studio just like that out in the out outside. And when I would get the chance, I'd say, "Hey, you know, come back and do an interview." And we and uh, whoever I would catch would come back to the to the RV. And we would, uh, you know, sit down there, kick all of the mics on and everything and do the interview with background noise, people riding by on motorcycles and whatnot. Um, but I never had any thought for a moment that somebody might hundreds of dollars worth of equipment, yeah. maybe thousands of dollars worth of. So that's, and, that's the kind of world we want to live in, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've no kind of, we've give, yeah, we've given up that ideal, mm. but we shouldn't actually, right? Yeah. I think it's attainable still. It really is. I mean, if you have the right outlook on life, and you know, it's uh, it's not it's not complicated, really. Mm. It's relatively simple. You know, distinguish between mine and thine. Um, you know, recognize the integrity of of uh, the the person and uh, the primacy of peace and social relationships. These are these are simple points, but they they make for an extravagantly beautiful little micro civilization that gathers here. 
Um, and, and that's really, I think maybe that's what's really behind Portfest. I'm not entirely sure, but, um, this idea that we're going to try and experiment in living for a week, you mm, know? Yeah. And what does it work, right? There's a reason there were, what, 2,200 people here this year. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think the, the, the easy part, it's, it's kind of like water running downhill. What we're doing is we're tapping into what is our, our human nature, our true human nature, not the contrived nature that, you know, governments have pushed on us for thousands of years, but going back to, uh, ancestral, the, the pureness of what humanity really is. Right. Uh, we don't have to make up a, a whole series of, of rules and standards. Rigid ideological uh, yeah. uh, postulates and things like that. Yeah. No, not really. We're falling back on sort of our default settings. Yeah. So we're, we're like I said with water, we're allowing that water to go its natural direction. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And it's, and it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, I wrote about uh, starting, about starting, I performed, you and I both did, in this January 16th, you know, this mm. Ayn Rand um, uh, novel. And so you get with this sort of the objectivist tradition, a very large sort of apparatus of, of ethics and, and aesthetics and, you, you know, probably, you know, if used Occam's razor, you know, a lot of it would, would sort of be unnecessary <laughs> in some yeah, way, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I wondered after, after that play, which, which my, my views on it keep changing actually by the hour, but, uh, but I wondered what somebody like Rand would have thought about pork fest because you know i mean there's a huge diversity of people here yeah yeah i mean uh um it requires a um you know a, a tolerance too mm. you know uh to because you know there's deeply religious people here their families are single people young people older people right you know and people with a lot of different uh, uh lifestyles and some of them you know have a sort of wacky ways about them you know yeah um but when you put a primacy on on peace and co- human cooperation as as the the thing that makes life uh, f- flourish and be beautiful, then you know that that instills within you a sort of tolerance. You know, you just realize it's way part, too important that the that this that's, that the the thriving of this community is more important than my own uh, maybe negative judgments on any one individual as part of that community. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and. and there was a, a general feeling of camaraderie. It, we weren't here to prove each other wrong or I, to... I feel uh, that way. D- even, even the levels of debate, if you could even call it debate, it was more like uh, there was discussion. Right. But but to mutual call... Mutual learning. Yeah, re- yeah. Yeah, it really was. There yeah, was, mutual learning. There, uh, other than, a, you know, I'm sure somebody argued with somebody. It's just... Yeah. You know, well, you know, Ben, too, I mean, for me also, we've all, you know, as sort of, you know, in the liberty-minded community seen, maybe it's not unusual, but I guess maybe I've become more sensitive, sensitive to it recently, a lot of wrangling, mm. you know, in the sort of Facebook culture, uh, you know, mutual excommunications and sort of bitterness that's out there. Then you come to a place like Forefest and you, and you see their, your interlocutors, you know, in the face and you realize, oh, this is a human being with real thoughts and feelings and you make amends, really. Yeah. And yeah. there was a lot of that going on here. I, I encountered several people who, uh, I knew only by name, mm, you know, yeah. um, but I had, you know, bumped across maybe criticisms they made of me or some fight they had with a friend or, you know, just something that introduced a little bit of an element of friction or tension there mm-hmm. may or may not exist, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. But I would 
go up to these people and introduce myself and just if you can just spend 10 minutes yeah of time that's genuine and sincere with people it you can build lifetime bonds yeah and that goes on here like like all week apparently right yeah 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 uh we had uh, a guy that approached us uh, early on from uh from Austria that came uh, he he didn't come here just for pork fest he came uh, to New Hampshire, and he worked for a while at one of the local farms that the uh, Free State Project people uh, work with. Uh-huh. And uh, but eventually, it was his goal. He got here to Porkfest, and um, when he first showed up, uh, he was kind of isolated. I mean, he he he's uh, he's from Austria. Uh, he he he, is, he speaks very good English, but it doesn't quite flow like a like a native English right. speaker. So there's just enough choppiness that made him feel awkward as he yeah. as he spoke with people, and so and he didn't really know anybody, and so here he is, in a little one man tent, with just his own one little thing, uh, when Porkfest started, and then by you know uh, halfway through Porkfest, I was seeing him sitting at a table with a bunch of people, and and like you know all of a sudden this individual who was entirely by himself is now part of a family, you know. Uh, he left the family in Austria to come here, yeah. but now he's among people and he's among friends. And he had some, some dietary issues when he first got here, all the stress of, you know, of everything. Sure. That worked its way out. He's walking around. He's eating. He's, you know, enjoying life. And, and That's so beautiful. To me, he was kind of this year's example of what Porkfest can do for yeah, you. Yeah, right. So I think it pays returns very much mm. all around the year. You know, I think it's it's very important for us to think about about uh, liberty-minded people as a community and building those institutions and associations that are cooperative and extended and robust. Because, quite frankly, I think this is the one one of the ways we resist the state. Yeah. You know, you and I were talking earlier. You know about like what are the what is the state's ambition? In this world, ultimately, it wants to reduce us to isolated individuals, yeah. which is ironic because people often criticize libertarianism, you know, as being all about autonomous, isolated individuals. It's not really. It's about the. It's about us as individuals using our human volition and voluntarily assembling communities and associations, you know. Yeah. But the state wants us to be isolated individuals because because we'll definitely lose that battle. Mm. But if we if we have networks of friendships that are that are strong and based based on on charity and love, um, and mutual respect, then we stand a much better chance of, of resisting and actually, and actually, quite frankly, building a new world. I mean, I really saw it. I realized this. I was almost, when I got up to speak, I was almost, almost speechless, you know, mm-hmm. because I realized that, you know, what's really going on here is that, uh, it's that the new world of liberty is sort of organically growing out of experiences like this. Yeah. You know, you can see it flourishing, you know, from these kind of heroic efforts to to do these kind of conferences. I mean, so long as these kind of things go on, we, uh, in the end, liberty will never be defeated. It can't be. Yeah, it's too rich. It's too robust. It's too intense. It's wonderful. And I want to encourage anybody who's listening to this who who might be sitting there saying, you know, there's no way I could get to New Hampshire. It's just too far away. Too physically, the distance is too far. Finances, we don't have it. But you know, if we could have 30 of these nationwide or 50 of yeah. these in North America, 
you know, uh, and they wouldn't have to be this big. They wouldn't have to have 2,500 people. They right. wouldn't have to have, you know, the big name celebrities in, in the movement to come and, and speak. Um, but, but also kind of like what we were talking, um, even the big named people, the recognized names that everybody wants to get to their functions, they live all over, uh, North America. Sure. So if there was a function, say, you know, we, we talked about, uh, one of the guys here, one of the vendors here is from, uh, uh, northern, uh, Louisiana. And he drives all the way up here with his entire kitchen and sets up a huge kitchen and does a big thing. Well, if this exact, if, if something like this were happening in Louisiana or Arkansas or Mississippi or Alabama or, or Tennessee that was right in that sort of circle of area, it would quite likely attract someone like that right. rather than driving all the way thousands of miles across the U.S. Yeah, that's crazy. He could right. just drive three hours and yeah. be there. Or maybe just do both or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we need ever more of these things. This is, I think, the 12th Pork Fest, is it? Uh, let's see. Somebody, 11th, 11th. 11th, yeah. Okay, 11th. So we need ever more. It's, what a success after only 11 years. And, and, you know, quite frankly, this is what, one of the reasons I wanted to build Liberty.me was to kind of, uh, insofar as it is humanly possible to recreate that sense of community in the, in the, in the cloud so that it's year round. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I think it's enormously important for, for battling. Uh, the state that we have these kind of human connections and associations. I think of the internet as our as the next frontier. Yeah, it's not it's not a replacement for the physical world. It's a it's an addition, really. And you know, I don't know if it's inspired by Porkfest or not, but I've spoke here at Porkfest this week. I've spoke with people from uh, Michigan and people from Wisconsin. Who are in the process of setting these up, just like this? Not this big again, right. because it's going to be new. But uh, the one in Michigan, uh, this will be the second year. Yeah, I've heard about this one. And yeah. then there's they're trying to set one up in uh, Wisconsin. This will be the first year for it. Oh, good. And uh, I'm. Uh, I told the guy to email me. I'll get the details. And I'd I'll like see, to know more about that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the more and and if we can coordinate these, or if somebody can coordinate them, so that you could theoretically travel from one and have a week or so break and get to the next one, have a week or so get yeah. to the next one, you know, uh, for myself, I'm being jealous. I mean, I'm being selfish here because for myself and my wife, that would <laughs> yeah, be ideal. Yeah, the perfect life. Liberty yeah. heads. We could just drive for like, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, uh, like deadheads. Right. Just driving from concert. Liberty heads. To- right. Yeah. 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 It's perfect. I, I think we've got a job for you. Maybe she just establish these <laughs> things all over the country. No, they're amazing. And, uh, what kind of events take place? Of course, I wasn't here during the week. But on on Saturday we did uh, the, this January sixteenth play, which was so riveting. Um, and then I, I spoke and heard, and then we heard from the Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne mm, was yeah, here. Yeah. And then we of course we had a dance party late that night, and but mo- mostly it's like people create their own kind of fun, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a major part of it. Yeah, uh, there's uh, you know there's the official Agora Valley. Where all of the merchant uh, merchants are supposed to there be concentrated, so fun. Yeah. and and it's really neat walking through there yeah. and and everything. Oh, that's great. But up here in the what might be called the tent city, right? Uh, back kind of behind where we're parked at here, mm-hmm. uh, was all tent camping. A big section out there, several acres of tent camping. Oh, is that right? And among them, there were there was a bakery set up. Oh, there was a uh, a, a breakfast themed. Uh, 
essentially a restaurant, an outdoor restaurant. Oh, wow. They, they made, uh, waffles and bacon and, you know, they had all that kind of stuff. And, uh, they had such a good business going that they pretty much kept it open all day. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, with, with breakfast themed things. And then pork chops in the afternoon, you know. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but the, and then there was an artist that had their tent set up just up this way. And he took, uh, he would, he found interesting rocks that he would just find in places. And then he carves on the rocks and puts shapes and things on the rocks. And then he does bigger rock, uh, bigger art as well. Like he had a, there was a big painting there and several other things. And, and so you have this little art community of several, uh, artists that sort of congregated in that area to, to, uh, uh, you know, to support each other. Right. And all this was. So there's no zoning regs that would prevent it. Right? Yeah. And all this was, in essence, off the grid as compared to the main Agora Valley. I see, right. Yeah. Um, and then there was another guy with a, uh, with a shopping cart that he had turned into a, a taco wagon. So he had all of his stuff in there. He had a little, uh, what do they call those little, a rocket stove. He had a little rocket stove where he cooked his, his stuff Meat. on. He would make yeah. you tacos, uh, with his little cart pushing it around. Oh. And, you know, and this is all unauthorized. Yeah. This, they, they didn't pay their fees to pork fest or whatever. They just uh, spontaneously did it amazing. because nobody was selling tacos or because nobody was selling breakfast yeah, in this area. Yeah, you know? Right, right. Uh, and there's a couple of people were doing coffee shops that way with coffee, different right. flavors of coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was scattered out throughout the, you know, unofficially, it wasn't even part of for- pork fest, right. but yet it, it springs up anyway. So Ben, what do you think about this? I mean, it's fairly interesting because one of the things you find at Parkfest is this sort of overwhelming sense of community um, and charity mm. and mutual support. And, you know, probably if if all you did was read the mainstream press and what they said about libertarians, you know, um, that's not what you would expect. Right. right. I mean, you would expect something something else. We're supposed to be all selfish Randians. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, right. let, let the poor starve. Yeah. Which, which Rand, of course, didn't herself right. believe. Right. I'm, I'm reading Atlas right now. Did I tell you that? Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm excited about it, actually. It's really interesting. One of the things that's interesting about Rand, I've noticed, is that, that she has a funny uh, class... Uh, bias in her in her writings. If you notice that all the the parasites and the bums and the looters yeah. and the really the really bad people, um, like a lot of them are, are come from the sort of uh, sense of entitled um, wealth. Mm. They're uh, they're they're in the upper classes, you know, yeah. and, and and they luxuriate, you know, in their surroundings. And the people that she admires, the producers and and the entrepreneurs and and the hard workers. Uh, they'll they'll do anything and go anywhere. You know they'll mm. uh, they're they're, uh, they're they're happy to mingle. You know with the working classes and you know they take coach and you know there's there's a kind of a class. So it's it's interesting because I I didn't know that about Rand actually until I read the book that <laughs> because the popular impression is you know exactly opposite. Right. But but anyway the op- the popular impression of, of libertarians is you know the yeah selfish and you know the idea of community and, and mutual support and charity is not the first thing that comes to mind. You know, if if you're just reading salons to coverage, you know, or right, something like that. Right. But that's exactly what you see here, actually. But it extends out of, I think, a, a, a good sense of of property rights and and human rights. You know, those those two ideas lay the foundation for 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 beautiful things to happen on a voluntary basis. Now, I would be uh, 
I would be shortchanging my audience if I didn't bring this up. Uh, when you were a very young man, you starred in a uh, production of Murray Rothbard's uh, oh, yeah. uh, Mozart Was a Red. Right. And if you look around on YouTube, you can actually find yeah. it. It's out there. I know. I, you know, I think I was about three. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that was uh, Murray's 60th, anniversary, uh, 60th birthday party in New York. And it was the first, I guess, public staging of this funny send-up of, of the Rand cult. But, although, you know, Murray was not just attacking the Rand Collective. He was attacking any overly severe ideological cult yeah. that was that tries to enforce, you know, people's beliefs at the expense of their own human creativity and personal eccentricity. I mean, that was the target. It was a target. The target was a kind of uh, ideological extremism where it's not necessary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Murray thought of, in some sense, some kind of uh, extremism, but but he didn't believe that it should sp- spill over to every aspect of life, and mm-hmm. and he was also very aware of um, of how those little micro cults can learn, you know, sort of become miniature despotisms, yeah. you know, yeah. and so so that's what the play is about, really. So it's not it doesn't pertain to that; it, it's it's anything. So, which is very interesting to me because uh, I was very close to Murray and I loved him very much. But no, I was asked to play Nathaniel Brandon, and uh, we had, I guess, an afternoon to rehearse. And <laughs> uh, yeah, we all just threw ourselves into it. You know, Ben, that when that tape was found, I really did not want it to go online. Really? Yeah, I really, I really fought it, and um, I held it back for, I think. Maybe four to six months. Wow. And then at some point, uh, the webmaster at Mises, where I was working at the time, uh, thought, you know, at some point, this guy's wishes just don't matter. So <laughs> he put it online, um, and I only discovered it a few months later. I thought, wait a minute, when did this go online? I didn't get mad or anything, but I was a little embarrassed about it um, um, uh, because, I don't know, I just, uh, it's it's a funny performance, you know, I uh, I, I came across rather flamboyant in a way. <laughs> I guess I was, I was supposed to, right? Um, but yeah, no, it was the part. Yeah, it's the part, right? But yeah, I had a full head of hair and you know, and that sort of thing. But yeah, it was it was very interesting. I met I met Nathaniel Brandon years later, by the way. Really? Yeah, at the Heritage Foundation. He's very very nice fellow, actually. Hmm. You know, I think he did. He of, know that you played him in the. Uh, you know, I uh, you know, I have wondered about that. I, I I don't think so because um, because I don't think there was YouTube back when I met him. You know, right. So he he wouldn't have known. Yeah, but he surely knew about that play. Murray had Murray had two different experiences with Rand. You know, he was in and out uh, mm. on two separate occasions. Um, the first time was after Atlas came out. You know, mm-hmm. no wait, no, it was before Atlas came out, and. He had a kind of a close association. He said, well, I'm sick of these people. And he walked away. But then Atlas came out and he thought, and, and he wrote, I'm sure that of all the reviews of Atlas that were ever written, there's nothing that compared to Murray's review, actually, just in terms of just effusive praise. It was just like over the top. I mean, unnecessarily so. Yeah. But he, he loved that. He loved that book. So he, that's when he got back in. Mm. But that's also when, when things got kind of grim in, yeah. in Rand's world. Um, I think what, what happened was, the book was not well received mm. uh, by the by the popular press or anything, and she had thrown her heart and soul into it. It was everything, yeah. to her, you know. Yeah. And so she was devastated yeah. at the reviews, and she needed a lot of support from her friends. And mm. so 
the people who loved her and loved that book really kind of gathered in around her and started protecting her from the outside world and sort of boosting her ego. And, mm. and that's when, the, that's more or less the founding of objectivism as I understand it. Yeah. Which I understand. I mean, it, it's, it makes sense in retrospect. Yeah. There's a lesson in that for today <clears throat> in the sense that, um, you know, it would be easy for a sort of a cult of a personality to develop around any of the, you know, the, 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 I don't, I hate to use these kind of terminologies like rising star or, oh, I you know, know uh, it's always regrettable. Yeah. It's always regrettable because it never really works. It's, it's also, it's not a nice thing to do to anybody because mm. all people are fallible. Yeah. You know, and if you hold somebody up as being this great infallible God-like figure, uh, they're going to disappoint you. And the only way to prevent them from disappointing you is to is to turn it into a kind of a religious style devotion, like you know, pay no attention to the critics, you know. Right. And uh, that shouldn't ha- that shouldn't that's that's a terrible thing to happen to anybody, especially a dead person. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the worst thing you can do to a person's memory is is to engage in a kind of hagiographic, you know. Mm. I use the term hagiography actually. Um, that's the study of the lives of the saints, but actually. In uh, traditional hagiography, there's never an attempt to cover up blemishes in life. Really? On the contrary, you will read, you know, egregious stories of of some of the greatest saints and, and the horrible things that they did in their lives. Hmm. And um, the reason they're saints is is only because, you know, the church declares that, you know, they died without a mortal sin or whatever. But there's never attempted to 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 call them. You know, godlike or, or holy throughout their lives or anything like that. So, I mean, I mean, if the church is unwilling to do that about uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas or you know anybody, mm-hmm. then certainly or Saint Ignatius or Loyola is another really great case in point. Um, uh, then certainly the secular world should not do that for its scholars and its academics. It's not doing them any service. Was it Augustine who was? Very uh, open about his oh his confessions previous, yeah. is difficult to read actually yeah it's like uh, what do they say um, TMI too much information yeah <laughs> <laughs> right you just don't yeah yeah, yeah. kind of mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet uh, he came up with the brilliant well there's even a YouTube that's taken off of it of comparing the emperor to the pirate you know and showing oh the, yeah uh, really the when when the when the pirate does it, he's a bad guy. But when the emperor does it, does the exact same thing. Somehow uh, it's justified. So, Ben, have you read uh, City of God? Uh, many years ago yeah. and not in, not completely. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. So so I read it. When the first time I read it, I had this overwhelming sense that I was reading that kind of template for what became, um, I was going to say the Western mind, but mm-hmm. another way to put it is is the modern world. Yeah. Because you get in this book a, a real recognition that the, the the city of man is distinct from the city of God. Mm-hmm. These are separate realms, and that uh, no no one can can ever uh, pretend to be to be God on this earth. Mm. God God is in heaven, and that our world is always a valley of tears, uh, always a struggle going forward. Striving for perfection, always, of course, but never reaching it. But the minute that somebody arrives and and says, you know, I'm in charge of you, uh, do things my way, that person is, uh, at least according to to this book, violating the 
uh, breaching the realm, mm. essentially. You know. And that's, uh, let's see, what, about 1,500 years old? Well, St. Augustine would have lived, uh, I guess, about 4th century, something like that. Oh, so older than that, even. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> it's an amazing it, book, really. And I mean, essentially, that's the foundation of what we're talking about. I think so. Well, and the whole book is, of course, a takeoff on on uh, the the words of uh, Jesus when he's presented the, the Roman coin and is asked, who does this belong to? Yeah. And he says, well, what belongs to God belongs to God, and what belongs to Caesar belongs to Caesar. So, so uh, this is a very gigantically important moment in history mm. because you, you see now a separation. This is essentially a radical attack on the Roman religion. Yeah. Which united the two realms. And Jesus says, well, no, actually they're separate. Mm. And, and that's an amazing thing. I mean, you'll find people that say, that would argue that that's the birth of the idea of human liberty. Yeah. Yeah. So Augustine takes off on this. Uh, writes about the city of God and city of the city of man. Um, it's a, it's a very very interesting, very beautiful book. Uh, it's it's fascinating. It's written so long ago, and yet it's still still telling the story of our times. Mm. And you know, I mean, like I said in my lecture, here the great mistake of the of the twentieth century, and it was egregious, and it was different from anything that ever happened in history. We really did try to turn the state into a godlike figure. Yeah, planning all of life. Yeah. Knowing all things, yeah. uh, controlling all things, managing all things. That was true in almost all countries and all times throughout the 20th century. And, um, it was, it was an egregious and horrible mistake. I mean, the, the arrogance mm. and the hell yeah. that it unleashed on the world. And, uh, if you actually, and we were talking about this earlier too, if you actually go back and read the statements of some of the leading progressives of the 1890s, 1900, 1910, they essentially were saying that these, uh, all these people coming up from the bottom are overpopulating. We need to do something about it. And, yeah, I only recently learned this. Yeah, and, and the methods of, just to use brutal language, the methods of the exterminators they they were more or less debating. Well, what do we do to keep these people from, you know, these <coughs> dirty people from the bottom? The masses. They wanted to exterminate them in one generation yeah. by stopping their ability to reproduce. They might have preferred gas chambers and gulags and firing squads, but they didn't figure they could get away with that because, after all, we're scientific people now. <laughs> so let's just sterilize them when the, when when we have the chance. Then the social worker gets a hold of them when they come to the hospital. You know, uh, in public schools and prisons, wherever we find these these uh, these these regrettable life forms, mm. let's stop them from reproducing. It's it's so difficult to read about this. Uh, in retrospect, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I I had no idea the extent of it yeah. and the uniformity of academic opinion that persisted for for like thirty years on this on this subject. Yeah, we talked about the the lack of any voice standing up against not them. one, not one single academic in any prestigious institution in the UK or the United States. Mm. And Ben, that was not that long ago. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with the Tuskegee experiment. Absolutely. Yeah, just wretched. I, I, I just see the name on a map. I'm, you know, we we winter in southern Alabama, down on the Gulf Coast, and uh, so I look at maps 
almost every day. And so when we're down there in, in Alabama and I, and I just see that name on there, yeah. Tuskegee, and I can't, I, it's almost like a, you know, a, a, a jab in my heart every yeah. time. <clears throat> well, you know what, what this whole history shows is something that's really forgotten now is that, that racism is at the very foundation of kind of the 20th century experiences with statism. Yeah. Those are, Really bound up with each other. Yeah. Now, my friend Charles Johnson would actually take it a step um, further and say that nationalism is at the is at the heart of it, and racism flows out of nationalism. I don't know whether that's true or not because I hadn't really thought about it enough. But certainly, uh, eugenics was was. I mean, racism doesn't quite describe it. I mean, that was that was the very core of it. And and uh, so you, you you another thing that's interesting that, that comes out of that eugenics experiment, which I didn't know. Um, is the medical test for marriage licenses. Oh, really? Yeah, because they mm. had to eugenically certify that you were entitled to, I mean, the ambition. Yeah. Because if we give you a medical test, we find out whether you're fit. Wow. Whether you're really fit to reproduce. And then you would get you would get these, uh, and so there's pictures of them online, uh, these eugenic certificates from the medical uh, 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 marriage licensure. Mm. So, so here you have the state using... Marriage licenses come about, you know, basically a late 19th century sort of thing, but immediately turned towards exterminationist purposes. Yeah. You know, I'm uh, I'm an ordained minister and I'm licensed to make to to have to do a marriage ceremony in uh, most states. Um, And but they vary from state to state with their local regulations. Like I can't marry someone in Ohio where our home is. Because I uh, I sent them the ten dollars that they required for for registration for me, but I filled out one little line wrong in the thing, so you know forbidden, no, yeah. go away, you're bad, and I and I thought I'm not going to ask a second, I'm not going to ask permission a second time to do a marriage, because what an atrocity that what a what not atrocity is not a good word what a uh, it's it's blasphemous is what yeah. it is a marriage. Yeah. As as we believe it is a, is a union between two people, two people who love each two other. Two people, absolutely. And by the way, that was um, I have to uh, speak up on behalf of uh, uh, our beloved whore of Babylon, Rome. Uh, <laughs> the Catholic Church um, has the same view mm. that the marriage is contracted between the individuals, yeah. not by the not by the presiding priest. It's a sacrament that's that's actually administered. Between the two individuals who are choosing it, yeah, the church is officiating uh, uh, more uh, like a witness to the like a witness in the event of uh, disputes or trials or anything. Then the court system comes into play, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's that uh, that that aspect of uh, uh, you know. There's later issues concerning the sacrament, but the 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 sacrament, the nuptials themselves, are mm-hmm. actually. Uh, the sacrament is confected by the individuals. Mm. It's a very interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so here you have the state yeah. stepping in where not even the church ever dared to go. That is amazing. Yeah. That, yeah, it is. I mean, as a Christian, to me, that is what blasphemy is. Yeah. It's, it's setting up something and saying, you know, that this has the authority of God. Right. Uh, and ignoring the actual authority of God. I, I don't know how you could have blasphemy and have it a different description right. of it than that. And then and then immediately that power is used to exterminate. Yeah. 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 
in the form of, of uh, medical. And, and I think these medical tests still are still around, you know. They're the perfunctory, you know, but, uh, mm. but that's the actual history of them. Um, there's, there's a lot of history that, uh, uh, you know, obviously Jim Crow, segregationist policies, you yeah. know, all over the place. Um, they were all over the country. They were designed to keep people apart. Um, uh, minimum wage laws, you know, uh, were, were, were born out of the d- desire, specifically stated desire, to, to, uh, create a sort of privation among mm. the under the classes so that they wouldn't propagate. Yeah. And, and, you know, so it drives me crazy. You turn on CNN now and they're going on about the glory of the minimum wage and how it's going to help poor people. It's like, no, no, the idea was to exterminate them. Okay. So let's just kind of, <laughs> Like, let's look back a little bit, you know? Uh, it's a funny thing about truth. You know, when you, I, I've made this argument quite a few times, but when you find truth, truth is like, um, I don't know, you, you have you ever panned for gold? It, I've, somehow I think I have, but I think I must have dreamed that I had, actually. <laughs> Everybody wants to pan for gold. Um, when you're panning for gold, it's a long process, and there's a lot of work involved. And then there's this moment when you look down and you actually know that you're looking at mm. gold. And it's not so much, I mean, you might be looking at 30 cents worth of gold. It's not the, it's not the dollar value yeah. that's, that's there. It's this moment that everything else is washed away and you found it. It's that eureka yeah. moment. You found it. There it is. Yeah. And it, <clears throat> excuse me. And it, and it absolutely looks different. Yeah. And everything else in the pan, yeah. and you know the moment you see it, yeah. that is gold. Yeah. And truth is very much like that. Mm. You know, you you can sort through, and there's lots of times you think, well, I think I'm on the right track here, or I think I'm going right there, and I think. But there are moments when you when you spot the truth, and you know it. There's just something inside that says, yeah, that that's really it right there. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing with well, like with this marriage thing. When you spot that, uh, you know, all the excuses, well, it's so you don't marry your cousin. Well, it's so that you don't, uh, so, so that this, you know, this person you're marrying doesn't ac- accidentally give you a disease. There's all these excuses that they come up yeah. with. But then the moment comes when you see what the real reason is. Yeah. And it's all about control and it's yeah. all about, you know, how they can manipulate our lives. And well, then you realize you know, here's that's the, the truth right there. And Ben, you know, uh, it makes sense in a way. If the socialists, or the total state ideology set out to control all the factors of production, control all of our communications, plan all of our our lives and property, and 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 manage our economic lives. They're going to have to manage our lives too. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you can't just let people live where they want to live, reproduce as they want to, mm. have as many kids as they want. That's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge leak in the system. You know, so they you know that they sought to plug that. Eugenics and, and socialism just go together. Yeah. They just do. They have to. You know, and this takes it to the... I, I I go in this direction quite often, and probably regular listeners get sick of hearing me do this, but if if you just take as a premise that uh, socialism is good and we need a leadership, you know, we need leaders, we need a leadership, we can't, we can't just be let... The, the public can't just be let to do whatever they, you know, uh, you have to have a structure in society based around this hierarchy and there has to be some kind of leadership top down deciding. Well, as you follow that train of thought, you have to come to the point of saying, then there has to be a worldwide totalitarian society with a very small number 
of uh, central planners that are making all these decisions for us, and they need to control every aspect because if you have a leak somewhere in this process, then then you have something that's not being controlled. Right, right. That's a, disa- a disaster. Yeah. And so if you accept the, the basic premise that socialism is built on, which all governments are built on, as we yep. both know, they have to. then you, if you're remaining consistent to your logic, you have to want a central government, uh, central planning, controlling every aspect of your life, making every decision for sure. you, and it reduces human life to essentially... Being controlled breeders and hamsters on a wheel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of animals that naively people, he, human beings thought, oh, this is an interesting animal. Let's take it out of this natural setting and put it in a zoo so we can watch it. And there's a lot of those animals that either turn sterile or they can't reproduce or they have, uh, you know, uh, dietary issues that yeah. can't be reproduced in a, in a, uh, in a zoo. And one way or the other, what you end up doing is they die or they can't reproduce or, or they have a miserable life. And even at times, there have been noble attempts to save a species that was about to go extinct by catching them all and putting them on zoos and trying to have a breeding program. And these the results on these are typically terrible results because it's central planning of something that's natural. And so I, I look at that and I say, well, then it's completely against human nature to behave in that way, to be in that zoo yes. setting, yeah. to be to have someone else control every aspect can't, of your life. It can't work, and it won't work. I like your image of leaks because, you know, you think about the way the world is functioning now. It's just... It's, it's it's gigantically leaky. I mean, it doesn't. That's not even quite uh, enough. I mean, it's like uh, non-compliance and disobedience is almost defining our lives now. Yeah, you know? and in yeah. so many ways, like everything that's going on in the world today. You know, our uh, from the app economy to you know to to uh, to uh, the, the collapse of in, intellectual property. You know, all over the, all over the world, and just the sheer chaos and and drug markets, and you know, it's just—it's hilarious just to live through times when you see all their plans just coming crashing down like this. Um, it didn't work, and <laughs> uh, um, you know, not even prisons can be controlled. You yeah, know, yeah. You know, as as we see from this great series that I love watching, Orange Is the New Black on television. You know, where they've established this society, they've exchanged, and you know, nobody's nobody takes it seriously. I really think we're kind of like really coming to the late. Stages of of the age of statism, really. Mm. Um, Marxists used to talk about this, you know, with regard to capitalism, they were wrong, but I think it's true with regard to statism. You yeah, know, it's like they they pushed it too far. It's it's been I don't know who pointed this out first, but it's been repeated a million times that you know uh, they can't they can't stop drugs from getting into prisons, right? Uh, and yet they want to try to stop drugs from getting into schools across the border. Oh, I know. You know, into into society. And you know, there are drug raids at my my local high school all the time. They do them routinely, mm-hmm. and people just laugh at them. Yeah, uh, they're just like, oh, here they are again. <laughs> I mean, oh, here come the dogs. You know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's they. they you know, everybody knows how to get around them. I mean, you can get pot much easier at my local high school than you can get cigarettes or, or alcohol or A's. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and this is despite all the endless raids and everything. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's hard to even think of one aspect of the state that's that's working anymore, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. we used to, as Americans, feel a great sense of, of pride in 
and our and our history of war and conquest, you know, around the world. You know, look at the Iwo Jima Memorial. But then look at what happened in Iraq. Yeah, we, we took on this country 25 years ago and said we we can make you better than you are. Mm. And look what we did. Yeah, it's a wasteland and a six-way civil war. Yeah, after 25 years, this is a calamity. Yeah, uh, and now we've got we've got civilian leaders in the U.S. that want to bomb, and they would be happy to bomb. Yeah, but they don't know who to bomb. Yeah, they don't know who to bomb. Yeah, they're probably debating it right now. Who do we kill now? Yeah, who do we kill? And they're trying to trying to isolate one little faction, but. It's just ridiculous, you know. I mean, there's just um, this is this is the U.S. is doing. It's another consequence of central planning, no different from anything else. And and another thing that's very interesting to me, Ben, is that when I was growing up, I grew up in a time when there was widespread respect for the for the for the cops and the police. You know, there's right. a, the thin the blue line. You know, if everything else about government was 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 inefficient, terrible, at least the cops were there for you. Now, I mean, that that has just completely changed. Yeah. Um, now people regard them as threats. I mean, they're basically to glorified tax collectors at best. Yeah, you know, uh, that's been a dramatic change. Yeah, police being used uh, by you know the uh, the banking industry to evict people from homes. Where in the past, uh, you know, that that kind of thing. There were evictions. There have always been evictions. You know, since there was home loans, there there have been evictions, but. Um, seeing the the brutality that's being used now is is really, I think it's, you know, maybe it's just that because the internet we're seeing it. See, more. I wonder. I've I've wondered about this. Like, like how come we have this impression of cops now, whereas we had a different view in the past? Is it just that we know more? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know either. I mean, I I know there's been a certain amount of militarization that's taken place since since nine eleven and since uh, since mm. the Oklahoma City bombing and so on. Um, but, uh, I wonder, um, if, if we always held, uh, sort of illusory views towards the cops. You know, I, I look, I like old movies, old black and white movies yeah. and so forth. And I look at some of the sixties TV shows where like Dragnet and things right. like that, where the cops were flawless, you know, yeah. or occasionally there'd be one bad cop, but, but the good cops would get him, you know, yeah. they'd expose him, they'd break him down, they'd, yeah. Uh, and then, but if you go back further and you go back and look at the actual, like the, the actual movies that were the Keystone Cops movies, the cops were made out to be bullies and buffoons and, uh, and I'm, I'm somewhat robust myself, but they were made out to be overweight. Yeah. And, and uh, people you should resist. Yeah. This is another interesting thing. I was thinking about this the other day with regard to, um, PG, uh, PG Woodhouse's, uh, series, uh, G's and Wooster. Hmm. Uh, so one of the repeating motifs in Jews and Wooster uh, novels is evading evading the police. Yeah. You know, so you steal their helmets. You know, uh, they're chasing you. Lead them off into a uh, into a lake, and you laugh, and they fall in. But you would never, you would never uh, decline to resist arrest. That's just what you do. Isn't it funny how times have changed? Yeah. I like old Buster Keaton movies, and one of the aspects of Buster Keaton, the running joke in Buster Keaton movie, is that he's running, he's always running, you know, Buster Keaton's always running, like, tremendously athletic individual, but, uh, so he's running, and he runs around a corner, and there's a cop, and so he freezes, and sort of tries to act casual, like he's, you know, nothing here to see, and... And right. says hello to the cop, and and you can tell his whole point is that, and Buster Keaton is always the good guy, you know, 
And yet, here is this guy who is in his way. And if that guy gets into his business, it's going to foul up whatever it is that right. he's doing. And even if he's in trouble, the last thing he needs is that cop sticking his nose in. Well, now that you mentioned it, Chris, during the, during the prohibition here, all the cops are always considered to be the bad guys. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's either corrupt or just ruining your life. So maybe this 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 sort of um, whitewash view of, of the police that I grew up with in the American civic religion and public school it was emerged out of World War Two. Yeah, or maybe it was a fifties and sixties thing. You yeah, know, I don't know. It's yeah. interesting. The uh, yeah, that's that's a very good possibility. There was a lot of uh, well, without without getting into a big paranoid uh, foil hat thing, there was an actual studio in the hills uh, just outside of um, of Hollywood. Uh, I'm trying to think of the actual street that it was on, but maybe it'll pop into my head in a minute. Um, and it was a, a government movie studio, and uh, they they regularly made things like uh, government propaganda movies during the during well, that's the war. Right. And remember that remember that the Supreme Court uh, smashed Hollywood uh, yeah, in 1946 yeah. or something like that. They yeah. destroyed the the studio system um, and put, putting 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 the whole industry on notice. Right. Um, you know, Hollywood arose without permission. Yeah. Uh, as an alternative way. And it was, a, you know, it made a more glorious contribution to American life than the U.S. government ever did. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, there was a lot of resentment uh, towards 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 Hollywood mm. on the part of, uh, I was just doing some research on this the other day, on the part of, uh, in particular, um, who's the guy who came with Truman? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. FDR. I mean, they didn't like it. And so they wanted it basically nationalized. Yeah. Which... That Supreme Court decision was more or less designed to do. You don't have to actually take uh, ownership. You just kind of put put everybody on notice. We can destroy you, which makes it so it's not so it's not communism, but it is fascism. It, yeah, it ends up being fascism as they as they bring their claws into it. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm talking about a little bit of that tonight. Uh, Hoppe distinguishes four four kinds of socialism: full blown socialism, and then you've got sort of social democratic socialism, and you've got conservative style socialism and then the last kind is what he considers sort of technocratic positivist hmm. style socialism um, based on you know kind of uh, you know piecemeal planning um, so um, we, we have all four in this country yeah uh, we should uh, before we run out of time we should talk a little bit about what you're doing this evening and what you're each time I have you on I want to talk a little bit about liberty.me and and there's there's some hypocrisy here because I keep stalling and not actually setting up my login. I need to do that. I need to get off no, my that, button. No, that's right. no everybody's – it was so fun to be here at Porkfest <coughs> because I met a lot of Liberty Me members here. So we already had a lot to talk about. We already had this connection. So there's a little micro society within. within <laughs> actually, it wasn't so little, but a lot of a lot of members came to Porkfest and it made me very happy because really that's all I really aspired to do is create a, a platform for communication and sharing and – and learning on online that was robust and always expanding and scaling upwards. And we're now two months into the experiment, and it's, I'm just thrilled. The quality of content that's coming out of the site is just enormous. People, Somebody asked me the other day, what's your favorite site to read? And I said, well, you know, I mean, my own website. It keeps me busy reading all day. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. So I'm really happy at the way that, that, that is going. So, yeah, tonight, and this is just... We do this every night almost. We have we have live classes, mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing a kind of twenty five week series of my twenty five favorite books, mm. which has been fun for me because 
I think this is number maybe nine or something that I've done. Um, so every week I encounter this new book, and and I forget about what the books I've done before because suddenly I have sense. Oh no, this is this one is my favorite book actually. Yeah. <laughs> and I throw myself into it, fall in love all over again, get really excited, lead an hour long discussion on it. So tonight uh, it's theory of socialism and capitalism uh, by Hans Hoppe, written I think 1983. It was his first big wor- work that he wrote coming out of uh, studying with a sort of deconstructionist socialistic philosophical tradition and working him, working his way towards uh, pure anarchism. So this is this was the result of uh, this book. And it's funny to me that I can I'm going to be teaching from my cabin right here <laughs> uh, you know at uh, at this beautiful campground. And, and I this I don't want to break into your uh, to the class that you're going to do this evening but uh, just expressing that it's arguably uh, Hoppe's greatest work. Uh, oh, I think so. Yeah. No, I mean, there's no question. About I mean, everything is in there. Everything. Mm-hmm. And and actually, the the opening section where he actually defines um, property, mm-hmm. it takes him probably six or seven pages to do. It's very very systematic. Well, well Hoppe is systematic. I mean, that's yeah. really the wonderful thing about him oh, is yeah. that he lays out a, a logical argument, and he doesn't leave any any strings unattached. It's totally open source theorizing. Yeah. I mean, you're welcome to look at it and take it apart. He doesn't mm-hmm. just toss around wild opinions. I mean, he's actually, especially in this book, it's, it's every step of the way. And not in a boring way. I mean, it's, it really lays it out. Yeah. So his theory of property that he presents here is rooted in um, <clears throat> the uh, the idea of scarcity. Mm-hmm. And it, that sounds obvious once you hear it. Like, we wouldn't need property in our bodies or anything. Um, if there weren't, if there were no contest for control, right, and that contest for control is a, a an extension of the reality of, of scarcity in the world, so that when I say that, you know, your listeners will go, well, you know, that's obvious, but not so obvious, right? Because, because I mean, let's just say there were a lot of thinkers who never figured this out, yeah, and people who devoted their lives to the idea of private property, never quite figured out why it existed or why it has to exist. Yeah. So I think Hoppe's exposition here is just frighteningly brilliant. I mean, it's, I reread it today, probably for the 20th time with a sense of like awe. Yeah. And I, I, you know, Ben, I, 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 you know, Hoppe, uh, is known for things that are not this book. Right. And I think, uh, that's regrettable. Yeah. Um, because people really need to, uh, learn from him, <clears throat> and consider just uh, what a mighty contribution he really does make. He's yeah. a, a brilliant theorist and a, an amazing thinker. Not perfect, right? You know, um, but you know, look if you find somebody, if you find a thinker that you agree with in every single respect, that's perfect in every way, then you might as well shut down your own mind because there's no reason for you to think anymore. I mean, the reason we the reason we think and we read is we want to engage people closely. So Hans is a great theorist to sort of engage at that level. But I, if I were going to give one book to anybody uh, by Hans, it would be this one. I think this is his whole, the whole apparatus is right there. Yeah. And we're talking about what, you know, what, how many years ago? I mean, uh, 30 years? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Real close to 30 years. Yeah. Right, right at 30 years. Yeah. This is uh, 2014, so yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, I know, uh, I know you love uh, Gregorian chant. Yeah. Uh, what other music styles uh, are you really, really, do you really Well, like? when you came into my room tonight, you were maybe taken aback that I was listening to Britney Spears. I don't know. <laughs> but I really like popular music. And and it's funny for me. And one of the reasons I do like it is that I spent so many years not liking it. Mm. 
So one day I thought, I like the market economy a lot. Uh, market economy represents a kind of a accumulation, extraction of, of, of bits of knowledge and a disbursement of that knowledge and a consumption of that knowledge in a profitable way. Things that are really popular, even if I can't see in what sense it's brilliant or wonderful, uh, there has to be something in it. Mm. So I kind of threw myself into uh, discovering what that something was in pop music, and I think I think I found it. Mm. I, th- I think gradually over the last, I would say maybe uh, maybe eight years or something, mm-hmm. uh, I've found that there is a, a, a core brilliance to it. You have to listen for it carefully, and you take a music snob like me, it's very easy to bypass it, you know, to overlook it. But uh, now I've I've come to just love it. I love the hardworkingness of these performers for one thing. I mean, they're just amazing. I brought that up for two two reasons. First off, I just find this amazing contrast between listening to chant, and, which to me is, I don't mean this in a, in, in a blasphemous way at all. It's almost like I'm listening to a magic spell. Yeah. When you hear chant, it's like, it's like are humans actually doing this? It's unbelievable. Yeah. And then, to, and, and you mentioned, as we were walking over here, you mentioned a Lady Gaga concert. Yeah. And I thought, what a contrast. This yeah. is so amazing. Well, I'm, I marvel at their, at their creativity and their hard work. Mainly, I just, you know, it's funny to me because you've got this music that's all about sort of living it up and drinking hard and staying out all night and, you know. But you know the people performing don't do that, right? You know they're on a trade. They're very much like this. They're hitting the bed really early. They, you know, they're very carefully monitored for how much they drink. You know, they to perform at that level, yeah, uh, in live concert settings. You know, it's, it's athletic. Oh God, it's just overwhelming. Yeah, I, I just you know people like somebody like Lady Gaga just amazes me, or Beyonce. You know, is the genius of our age, and and for that matter, Justin Bieber. And I mean, all these people are are they're 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 tough. They're smart. They're de- like dedicated, and you know, to their to their to their art and to their task, like a few others are. And you know, when you know, it's it's amazing. Like you can't you can't get sick. You know, mm. if you're on tour. Yeah. I mean, if you if you if you decline to go on, uh, you know, there's ten million dollars at stake or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can't you can't decline to go on because you you don't feel quite right. Yeah, you and, can't call it in. No, <laughs> and I've I've even been at some smaller sort of venues and watched uh, these hardworking upcoming artists uh, uh, perform. It seemed like they had the flu, mm. you know, but they're sticking with it, you know. Yep. And I just admire that. I admire the work ethic. It's a funny reason to love pop music, but it's, <laughs> but uh, I see it. Uh, I also see a certain musical brilliance, especially in Lady Gaga. I mean, I just think she's just musically. Um, very creative and innovative and brought back some rhythmic structures that really haven't been popular since about the late 16th century. Mm-hmm. That's more to go into than I could possibly go into, but I do believe it. Um, but anyway, I, I took on pop music as a challenge to me personally because I thought, you know, I love the market. I believe that the market results embody a certain brilliance, even if you can't find it and see it. It doesn't mean you have to like it. But it's helpful to kind of like check your own biases and see if you can discover the thing within it that's actually wonderful. Now, the second reason I brought that up is because I was thinking of Hoppe and I was thinking of the body of his work and his ongoing work and things that he's done recently and so forth. And uh, and I thought, uh, you know, one of my favorite musical performers was, uh, is, uh, he's still alive, is Eric Clapton. Uh-huh. And when I hear the magic that he produced... 
uh, with cream. Well, even earlier than that with um, uh, uh, the Yardbirds. Um, there's there's a certain quaintness to it in the Yardbirds. And then he came into cream and there was a maturity that took place. And then coming out of Cream in his solo career, uh, and he worked with some of the southern, uh, some of the southern guitar geniuses that yeah. were around at the time. And <clears throat> Clapton, by the early seventies, was individually producing. He was at the peak of his career, and he really uh, changed music at that time. Yeah. And uh, and he's still performing today. And if you go and you see one of his concerts, if you're a fan, you will like his concerts. But I've often looked at modern Clapton work, and I've thought, uh, I really like that. I like to listen to it. I like to record it. If I didn't know Clapton, I wouldn't like that. Right. Because I'm being truthful with myself. No, but, but, but see, the thing, here's the thing. Uh, there's no such thing as, as music in the abstract. Mm. You know, all music is connected to some life experience. It's connected to, you know, a culture, a way of thinking. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of listening to an opera on a CD and going, well, what is all that? I can't even stand it. <laughs> and then you actually attend the opera. Yeah. And it's in its real context and it's thrilling. Yeah. Then you go back again and listen to what you heard before that you thought and was you nonsense. You can re-experience Now all you that. love it, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is the great problem with music appreciation courses. You know, they, you go into the class on the first day and they're just playing you a bunch of CDs. And, and this, and this, you know, sort of vacuum, you know, the sterile environments, unconnected to anything other than school. Yeah. And that's not the way to learn music. That's yeah. not the way. The way we learn music is, is, is by experiencing it in, in our life. It's why, you know, the songs that are important in people's lives are the ones that they fell in love to in high school. Yeah. Because it's like, like a perfume. Yeah. You know, every time you hear that song, you remember what that kiss was like. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. This is also why movie scores are so popular nowadays, because... Because the music is attached to action and, and life experiences that, that we can tap into that mean yeah. a lot to us. We're sitting at the movies with our friends. We're eating popcorn. We're having a good time. We get overwhelmed and entertained by this great, great movie. And then later we buy the soundtrack. So, um, yeah, music is not an abstraction. We do, we do a disservice to it mm. uh, by treating it that way, I think. My friend Michael Dean, uh, who began his career as a, uh, a punk rock star, became a punk rock star, uh, he talks about how the rhythm of music, uh, you know, there's different rhythms to music, and, and one of the rhythms to music is the rhythm of the heartbeat. And the yeah. other rhythm, popular rhythm in music, is a heartbeat accelerated in something like exercising, working, making love, uh, the different things that we do yeah. that brings our pulse up to get that that beat going, that yeah. you know, thump thump thump. I'm moving, and right. my audience can't see it, but right. but um, but music, uh, as he was saying, matches that beat of your life. And, it does, and and whether it's uh, you know whether one drives the other or the other drives the other. Somehow it, it sinks with us and really... It's really true. And you know, what, what's interesting about what you just said, um, so there's a reason why liturgical music has traditionally been, uh, uh, how do you say, like as much as possible stepping away from that, that sort of... The thumping uh, beat. From the thumping beat. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, the thumping beat reminds us of... of you know the tactile, the present life, yeah. and if you want to think about eternity, then the beat goes away um, gradually. But one of my favorite groups that performs music of the 16th century um, is a is a twelve singers 
And music of the 16th century is purely democratic. There's no masters or slaves, so there's no mm. bass part and trouble part. Every every part has is integral to the whole, and the whole's larger than some of its parts. You know, it's magical that way. Um, but first of all, there, there is no there. There's a, a there's a pulse that you never hear. Right? Mm. You never hear it, but you can feel it. You know, it's like it's 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 in there somewhere, but you have to imagine it. Yeah. Um, but I love this group in particular. It's called. St- uh, 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 it's called Stilo Ant- Ant- Stella Antico, I think is the name of the group, mm. but they have no director. <laughs> and you can watch their YouTubes, and it's amazing because they stand around in a circle, and there's silence, and then they all just start to sing, and it just happens. Wow! And you can do it if you really connect with people. Yeah. You look in their eyes. You've got that sense of connection to them, but 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 when it really gets magical is the ending of phrases, the way they'll slow down together, and wait and hold that last note, and this is rest on that final note, and then hold it out for an indeterminate amount of time, and then it just all stops together. Wow! Like that. No directions. Humans no are directions. amazing creatures. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. That's really the way freedom should work, really. Yeah, I, I I love the music of that period because I think of, I think of you know the way, seven billion people in this world sort of cooperate together on the great project without overt knowledge that they're doing that. Yeah, just pursuing their own own lives. But for whatever reason, we live in a world that makes it possible for that coordination to take place. You know, and I think I don't know how to put this in a bumper sticker way, but I think the more that we look at that world that we're talking about and the less we concentrate on, you know, the evils of the government, what the government's doing, yeah. what, what the mind of the state is. I, we have to understand. We have to know our enemy. And, yeah. And I don't think... I but don't. that's s- not all we need to know. Yeah, exactly. We need to know about the, about the beauty and love that's embodied in the idea of, of human liberty. Yeah. It's the aspect of anarchy that I think would shock the average person who doesn't really know what we are or what we're about. Yeah. I agree. Jeffrey, we probably ought to wrap it up. We should wrap I it up. Certainly. I've got to start my class here in a few minutes, in fact. Yeah, I certainly yeah. appreciate you coming on the show. It's been amazing to be here. It's really been a pleasure um, to be in your home. Thank you <laughs> so much for everything. It was an honor. And, to have a, you. and a very special conversation, so yeah. thank you. Uh, folks, be sure and get over to liberty.me and uh, be sure and check out badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much. Thank you.